Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez and Gary Sheffer and I are looking forward to our discussion with our guest today, Valerie DiMaria, principal at The Ten Company, a consultancy dedicated to helping C-suite executives use communications to transform their businesses. Gary, good morning. Hey, good morning, Mike. You and I have known Valerie for years. I, I, I believe at one point she actually led PR and advertising at GE Capital. Is that right? Yes, she did. And she was a fantastic colleague. And that was a tough job. And and, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to her about that. But I also uh, I'm a big admirer of Valerie on what she does with executive coaching. That's great. Before we get to Valerie, let's talk about some items in the news. Gary, I probably shouldn't do this since we we want everyone to listen to (laughs) this podcast, no other. But one of my favorites is the New York Times, The Daily with Michael Bavaro. I'm often in the morning listening to that as um, I'm eating my cereal. (laughs) But, But this week, as hundreds of heads of state were gathering in Scotland, in Glasgow, for what's known as COP26. He interviews the Times International climate reporter, Samini Sengupta, I hope I pronounced that correctly, where they explore the question as to whether anything really ever gets done at these global get-togethers. After all, this is the 26th (laughs) UN Climate Change (laughs) Convention. And I'm not going to spoil the ending about what they say in that podcast, But I'm also mesmerized by the amount of posturing and announcements that go on as lead-ins to such events, not only by participating governments, but by businesses and NGOs. That said, one lead-in, if you will, from this past week that made me more than a tad uncomfortable was watching a congressional hearing of the House Oversight Committee where they had summoned top executives from some of the largest oil companies, Chevron, ExxonMobil, BP, and Shell among them. And the title of the hearing on the official registry, you can go on the website and see it. It says, Fueling the Climate Crisis, Exposing Big Oil's Disinformation Campaign to Prevent Climate Action. Now, truth in packaging for our audience, I do work for an energy distribution company when I'm not doing this podcast with Gary. And Gary, you worked at GE that had a significant play in the technology and equipment part of this with Baker Hughes, which I think has since been spun off yes. and supports the oil and gas industry. But probably probably the most damaging uh, sort of truth in packaging is that in my previous life, I actually worked on Capitol Hill for a Democratic United States senator where I was in part a perpetrator of such <laughs> events. So, so we, we can talk about that later. But there was no news broken at this event. There were perhaps some worthy questions about a conversation that had taken place between some industry lobbyists a year ago or a few years ago. But all the executives did what you'd expect. They they, they spoke to what their companies were doing relative to climate change and energy transition. Some members cross-examined the witnesses as if this was a trial that was perhaps worthy of of Hollywood. Others obsequiously tried to defend the witnesses by attacking the members that had set the hearing up. And then some members of Congress proceeded with yes-no questions, you know, on matters that seriously required more context than yes-no. And and when the member would ultimately interrupt the person after they had said like their fifth word, you know, and then they'd say, well, I'll take that as a no. But Gary, I have two questions for you on this. One, do hearings like this serve a purpose? And two, if you had a client or a boss Mm -hmm. who had been called to answer questions before such a hearing, what advice would you give them? 
the hearings of this kind serve no purpose. They are not meant to discover facts or advance thinking legislation in any way. I'm going to use a word that my students use all the time, performative, mm -hmm. right? This is performative legislation or congressional action. And it's a shame. Is this their and, Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment? Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> look, it, it's, you know, and you and I both know these uh, on the witness side of these things, these uh, incredibly difficult situations because you're really a pawn. Mm -hmm. and, and to your point here, you, you don't have a title like exposing big oil's dif disinformation campaign, et cetera, et cetera. If you're really interested in understanding what the witness has to say, you're using them as props, really, in this situation. And it happens on both sides, Mike, right? It's, it's not particular to one party. I, I would say if I were giving advice to a CEO or another executive going into one of these kinds of hearings, we're clear that you're not going to get a chance to provide any context. My boss, Jeff Immelt, he said on this podcast, truth equals facts plus context, Yeah, right? The truth is not the goal here, right? Mm -hmm. The truth is not the goal here. So remember who your audience is. Remember what you're there to do and what your role is. You're not speaking to the folks who are on the dais in front of you. You're speaking to the people in your company. You're speaking to your customers. You're speaking to your family, et cetera. And keep that in mind. Do your best. Be short in your answers. Don't play games. I'm a big believer in not being witnesses, not being bullied by folks with the yes, no tricks and that kind of thing. Don't fall for the charade, really, that these things are. It's very difficult. And I would say, let's sit down and I'm going to play Congressperson X and we're going to go through this time, you know, four or five times before you, you take that seat in Washington. Yeah, I think these are these are often difficult situations, but you have it exactly right. Now, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, Mike, you you've been involved in these. You mentioned, but by the way, we're going to delve deeper into this perpetrator thing that you mentioned <laughs> earlier. <laughs> but I may have to rethink my partner on the, on this podcast. <laughs> so, were you ever, when you were in working on the Hill, ever involved in hearings like this? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In fact, the one that comes to mind most and 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 is, you know, is cringeworthy, there was a group back at the back in the day, this is like 36 years ago. There was a group called the Parents Music Resource Center. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, yeah and, uh, no. and and it had Al Gore's wife was was involved. Ah, yes, and, yes. And the aide at the <laughs> White House had had a wife that was involved. So it was Tipper Gore and trying to remember some of the other people involved. But it was done through the Commerce Science and Transportation Committee, which oversees a lot of communications law. And Fritz Hollings, the US Senator that I, I worked for, and some of his other colleagues were keen to go after you know, the, all these, this foul language that was in rock lyrics. So they set up a hearing that essentially became known as the porn rock session on Capitol Hill. And, and to this day, it's like every time there's an anniversary, like every fifth year, there are stories about, you know, Frank Zappa testifying. Yeah, exactly. You know, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister. What people don't remember is that John Denver actually testified. Is that, that right? Day too. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, wow. and he was defending Frank Zappa. So good for him. So, so, so anyway, yes, I've been there, done that, don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, imagine if they could hear if Tipper Gore, I don't know if she listens to the TikTok channel on Sirius XM, but boy, the, the, the music is a lot different than, than it was even back then. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, it's crazy. And also watching the run up to COP26 mm -hmm. in Glasgow, you know, some other interesting things that I noted, but one was this piece from Tima Bansell. She's a Forbes contributor. And, and the piece leading into the climate sum, summit uh, was kind of making the case that big business should be at the COP26 table. And it brought back thoughts about, 
you know, conversations I'd had with CEOs and executives about whether or, or not our company should go or we should do something special at like the World Economic Forum, Forum you know, in Davos. But she kind of ticked through kind of an interesting list as she quote Climate Action 100 report that 80% of corporate carbon emissions can be attributed to just 167 companies. She also makes the point that over the last few years, carbon commitments have been a big topic in corporate boardrooms and executive suites. She also cites that of the top 50 S&P index companies, that 45 of the 50 have submitted carbon disclosure project response mm-hmm. disclosures, that 31 of them have, have already committed to net zero and talk about car- being carbon neutral and having zero emissions and so on. So, Gary, you've counseled CEOs. Does Tima Bansell have a point specifically around COP26? Should business have gone to COP26? And given the event, if, you're, if your company was or is heavily involved in sustainability and climate change efforts, would you have used this moment to tout your bona fides or play into the news coming each day out of Glasgow? Mike, I'm a big believer that any progress on climate change mitigation is going to come from business. I, I don't have confidence in, in government. I I do think to go back to my performative word that some of these sessions have turned into performative events. And the answer is yes, business should be part of this discussion. However, having said that, I'm not sure I would have counseled my CEO to go Mm -hmm. or to use it as a time to or use it as a platform from which to talk about our own climate action. I think the public is very skeptical about these big events. And I I would not associate my brand or my company with them unless there was something very, very specific to my company or some of the pledges that, that we made. But look, you know, business and government are going to have to work together to solve this. The Chinese government and the U.S. government are going to have to work together to solve this. I say the more people in the room, the better. And frankly, I think, and unfortunately, I think business may have to go do this on its own over the long term. Yeah, I'm a little surprised, actually, that there wasn't more activity beforehand. I realize lots of things are going on in in Washington right now, but the White House itself didn't make more of an effort to at least have conversations with business as they were leaning into this. I I remember that the Obama administration, ahead of the the Paris COP, had asked a number of business leaders for advice. And I know I went representing Cargill at the time to a meeting with about 26 different companies and the the president made a a quick entry, but it was, you know, John Kerry and a a few of the people who work in the the White House close to the president who, you know, it it was kind of brass tacks. What are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. How can we talk about this? How can we advance this? And I, I felt there was a lot of positivity around all of that. But to your point, it would be nice that given the size of and and also the global expanse of a lot of these larger companies, you would hope that they're at the table or at least having the chance to be heard. Exactly. Now, our next item I want to talk about actually was offered up by our graduate assistant, Chris, and the chief engineer for the Crocs. So we're going to ask Chris to to join us in in this conversation a bit. But Gary and and, and Chris, you know, there there was this incredible story. Yes. Uh, And and Chris, I know you were watching it on on television, I think, as Kyle Beach, the, the former Chicago Blackhawk, made the news on this public, but he was confirming that he was essentially the John Doe in this lawsuit that had been filed against the the NHL team, the Chicago Blackhawks, and a number of people currently informally employed by the team. And the alleged incident took place all the way back in May 2010, when Beach was like a 20-year-old kid at the time, but was 
a, a big prospect for the franchise. And the then video coach, Brad Aldrich, according to the charges, sexually assaulted him and, uh, and then threatened him with violence if Beach told anybody about this. Beach said that he reported the assault to the team that month, but that they delayed action because the team qualified and eventually won the Stanley wow. Cup that year. The guy who was the coach, Joel Queenville, you know, he was the, the coach then. He actually, this past week, actually resigned at, as the coach of the Florida Panthers. Aldrich, by the way, resigned back in 2010 in order to avoid an internal investigation around his alleged conduct at the time. And, and then the NHL this past week also fined the Blackhawks $2 million and NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman apologized, and he said, we could not be more sorry for the trauma that Kyle has had to endure, and our goal is to do what is necessary to continue to move forward. The statement said that the Wirtz family, which owns the team, was approached about a possible lawsuit last year. They relied on information provided by their then counsel and then human resources that this matter was appropriately looked into and resolved back in 2010. But when the lawsuit was filed in May and additional allegations and information were made public through media reports, the team's owners commissioned an independent report, the results of which were made public this last week. Beach then decided to speak publicly about his experience and identify himself as John Doe in the civil suit, of course, igniting a scandal for the NHL and for the Chicago Blackhawks and for everyone involved. When Kyle Beach came forward to speak, I know when we both got the notice mm -hmm. from Chris, I went on ESPN and saw this emotional, powerful, heart-wrenching presentation from him. I'm just wondering, first of all, as, as the three of us talk about this, is, you know, was that apology enough? Are the resignations, the fine, the apology enough? And clearly, there's still a legal case that's going to be played out. But I'm a tad surprised we haven't heard more directly from the Blackhawks organization. Mm. What do you guys think? Chris, weigh in here. And Chris is, you're a former hockey player, right, Chris? So yeah. you're a big fan of the yeah. league. Follow the league. I was, it was heartbreaking to watch, you know, the Kyle Beach interview, like you mentioned. And I think, I think one of the, the worst parts about it is when, when Brad Aldrich left the Blackhawks, he went to a high school and did, he assaulted a minor. So it just goes to show that the Blackhawks lack of, responsibility yeah is it harmed other people past what happened here and essentially the Blackhawks put a Stanley Cup you know a trophy over the well-being of a human being and I think it's just it's terrible you know everything that's happened and I've seen you know they're asking that his name be removed from the cup you know Brad Altridge's name be removed because he he got to celebrate with the Stanley Cup while Kyle Beach had to watch this go on after knowing what had happened. And I'm seeing a lot of people saying rather than remove his name, they should put X's through his name to make sure, you know, that it's almost as an asterisk to remember, here's, you know, what happened this year and, you know, kind of dampers the, the cup. So. It's a, Chris, it's a really great point is, and, and we've seen this in so many places, haven't we in sports, Michigan state university, Mm -hmm. with the, the female gymnastics, gymnastics yeah. Ohio State wrestlers, where leaders take Penn State, leaders take a look the other way and, and put team performance ahead of individual needs. Mike, I don't think what the Blackhawks have done from an apology is enough. And I think the NHL ought to step in and take a look at this more deeply and who was responsible for the decision to sort of let this go on and let Aldrich continue. I also think the NHL ought to take a look at this across hockey, mm -hmm. you know, both the league, the junior leagues, et cetera, and see if there are policies and processes in place to make sure complaints of this kind get addressed in a meaningful way.
Yeah, I mean, as you as you say, I mean, culture in this is so important, and I think when incidents like this happen, people need to respond more forthrightly, more boldly, and more sensitive to the the issues at hand, as opposed to sweeping it under the rug because they're interested around you know winning a prize. Exactly. So thanks, Chris, for bringing that up. And for our listeners, bringing that subject up for our listeners, that's the kind of quality students we have here at BU, right? It's why they're so highly, seriously, that's why they're so highly sought after uh, in the job market. So, and Chris has done a great job for us over the past two semesters on on the crux. Yeah. So, so Gary, two quick follow-ups, and then we can go to our interview. In our last show, we talked about John Gruden's resignation, you know, from uh, the Las Vegas Ra- Raiders for his uh, racist and homophobic language that he had used in email exchanges with a then Washington Redskin, we now say Washington football team or football club exec. This past week, the NFL was being pressured to release more information about the investigation from which the emails were leaked. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said that the league will not make public the results of its investigation into into the team workplace culture. Goodell said the league is protecting the whistleblowers who came forward despite two former employers, uh, employees of the team asking for the investigation to be made public. Also, an attorney, Lisa Banks, who represents dozens of former Washington team employees, tweeted out right after Goodell's announcement the claim that some former staffers asked for anonymity was false. Gary, in your mind, did Goodell play this right? I mean, I I understand they're legal matters. You have to be awfully careful. And yet in reputation matters, sometimes you have to be awfully transparent and quick. Your thoughts? Well, I I just think that disclosure is your friend, Mike. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a thing I try to sort of live by and there are legal considerations And, and disclosure is your friend because it helps actually address the issue at hand. So what happened inside this football team? and whether the people who are still at it should continue to be part of the NFL. So I just, I don't understand it. And then practically, practically. Do you think he missed an opportunity to provide maybe a little bit of context to all of this? Yes, and and absolutely. And look, this stuff is going to come out. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think that the league can be that obtuse about whether eventually this information is going to come out or not. So why not release it on your own terms and use it to advance some change that clearly is needed, whether it's in the league or in just in this team itself. And it might actually advance, you know, culture change throughout the NFL, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, and Mike, look at this. When you talk to CEOs or, you know, commissioner like Goodell, Commissioner, you can have 10 stories about this issue, or maybe we have one or two. I mean, just practically, right? Uh, Continued leaks, continued pressure to release the information. As a friend of mine says, do you want to win the argument or do you want the argument to be over? That's a very sort of cynical way of thinking about it, but it's a way of thinking about it. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) so, So there you go. Well, the, lastly, is a more, more of a comment than a question. Gary, last week we had heard rumors that Facebook was likely to change its name to Metaverse. Those rumors were pretty accurate. The new yep. name is Meta, and Meta becomes the name of the parent company of Facebook, not of the app itself. So that, you know, Meta is the parent company for Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and other company holdings. So Meta is to Facebook now as Alphabet is to Google. Now, I I really enjoyed a lot of the funny responses and commentaries on various channels over the last week. My favorite was the the burger chain Wendy's in a social media response where they suggested they were changing their name to Meat. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to say, Mike, there is some really creative stuff going on in social media. 
And I, I think the fast food industry may be the best at it that I've well, seen. And I love it. And, and, you know, and with Wendy's, they've kind of created, it's as if this person, Wendy, is the, <laughs> is the, you know, is the one commenting. And she's kind of you know, sassy yeah. and even taking on competitors at times. So I, I really enjoyed that. And, and it really does. It just, it, it's got the Wendy's logo. And then it just says, changing name to me. <laughs> I love it. So let's now go to our conversation with 10 company principal, Valerie Di Maria. Welcome back to The Crux. And for those of you who are listeners, you know, in this fall's series of interviews, we've been really focusing on this intersection of business, communication, society, and and the role that communication can play in driving progress, something we're looking at at Boston University and the work we do in the classroom. And I know a lot of companies are also looking at as well as agencies. And we're going to talk about this topic and others today with Valerie Di Maria. She's a highly respected communications and marketing leader in both the corporate and agency world. I'm particularly interested in knowing how these topics that we've been talking about on the crux are affecting the advisory business, coaching of CEOs, strategy work that Valerie does with her clients. Valerie is the founder and principal of The Ten Company, a strategic consultancy launched in 2012, dedicated to helping C-suite executives transform their businesses through authentic, results-driven marketing and communications. Valerie, the great thing about Valerie as a guest is she's seen it from both sides as a CCO and CMO, and now from the agency side. And she's held CMO and CCO roles at Fortune 100 companies, developed comprehensive brand and reputation building programs, working closely with CEOs at GE Capital. I've heard of that. (laughs) Motorola and Willis. She's been honored with the PRSA's John W. Hill Award for Leadership and the Practice of Publications, two PRSA Silver Anvils and two Big Apples. She's been named one of the top 10 women in PR and one of the 50 most powerful women in PR and a tech industry key player by PR Week. Valerie is very deeply involved in our profession in advancing it. Mike and I know her well from the page board and page activities, and it's always been a pleasure to work with Valerie. Valerie, welcome to the Crux. Well, thanks, Gary. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to talk to both you and Mike today. So let's start out with, this is the 10 company you formed in 2012. Tell us about the 10 company, why you formed it, and what kind of work you do. Sure. So my business partner, Claire DiNicola, who also has C-suite experience, she was CEO of a technology company in the healthcare industry, we decided to take all of our client-side experience and apply it to an agency environment. And we work in three areas. We work in, you know, external communications, thought leadership, crisis, social media. We work, secondly, in employee engagement, strategy and execution, and third in executive coaching. Excellent. So so what's the concept behind the 10 company? For our listeners, by the way, that's all together, right, Valerie? The 10 yeah. company is, is all together. What's the concept behind the name? Glad you asked that because we do have <laughs> a concept. Uh, well, we didn't want to take the usual agency branding technique of putting our names on the doors. We wanted to create a brand that stood for something. So it actually means a couple of different things. One, it means we always want to strive to rate a 10 on our excellence ratings with our clients. So we want to be a 10. Secondly, we have the 10 tenets of client service, things that we learn from being our clients ourselves, you know, having passion, excellent execution, things of that nature. And then third, there's a financial component. We reinvest 10% of fees spent with us in complimentary services like special coaching or industry reports. So that 10% goes back to the client in services. Excellent. That's a terrific concept. Thanks. That's, that's terrific. So 
your company also has a service called Voices, which is described as communications coaching for women by women. Tell us about that and how you tailor your communications coaching for women. This is something I'm particularly passionate about. As we said, both Claire and myself and other our other senior leaders have C-suite experience. So we bring that real world. We know what it's like to be in a boardroom presenting. We know what it's like to run a town hall meeting ourselves. We bring that in-house practical expertise to women. And we obviously look at it from a female sensibility. So we have a range of courses and training, we, we customize everything to the specific company culture as well as the individual. We'll do big seminars. We just did a big webinar for IKEA, for example, for 300 of their female employees on how to be better risk takers. We do a lot of very specific advice, like helping women learn how to brag more, how do you promote yourself, <laughs> helping women to stop apologizing. Good. I think women in particular say, I'm sorry, way more times than is necessary. Canadians uh, do that too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and things like how to, being in a meeting, how do you show up in a meeting, how to offer suggestions, how to offer your advice, your counsel without qualifying it. You don't need to say, you may have thought about this already, or this may not be a good idea, but so it's, it's behavior and it's language and it's skills such as that. Sounds really smart. You know, the number of women in public relations have, have cert it's certainly grown and, and, and women are doing well and advancing even into top jobs, both in-house and, and even into agencies. But it, there are only so few that I find in the bigger agencies. What do you think is happening there? Is the industry doing enough to change? And if not, what should it be doing? Yeah. I would say a lot more work needs to be done there for sure. I would say that we need to maybe make a better effort with the senior leadership of the major holding companies because they control most of the big PR mm -hmm. jobs. So what's their awareness of the impact of diversity? And I don't have the numbers, but I would bet that they don't spend nearly as much money and time on leadership coaching than their than corporate Fortune 500 companies do. So they right. might yeah. look at that. I'm also a huge, I love that women have grown in, in seniority, especially in-house to CCO roles. I would say that one of the things I'm an advocate of is making sure we don't, companies don't check the box because they have yeah. a woman or a diverse leader in a staff function. We need to make sure we're in line functions. Your point about running agencies, but also great if we're the GC, great if we're the CCO, great if we're the head of HR, but how many of us are actually running lines of business? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think throughout industry, there's a, the, the tendency when we talk about diversity, companies and organizations first look at, you know, what's in their functional roles. You know, they look to HR, they they look to communications, they, they look to marketing, but oftentimes in the operational roles there, there are, are few women leaders. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting because in my classes at Boston University, the the numbers of women versus men are just astounding. Students, yeah. um, I have twenty five. Mike had twenty five students in in each of his classes. There may be three or four men in those classes, and so there's a bow wave coming into the profession, which is terrific. But you're right, and particularly in you look at the numbers of female CEOs, women CEOs, in Fortune five hundred companies. The, it's up to boards, right, to really start taking a hard look because the numbers are so low. It really is, is it, astounding. It, it's very depressing to me, although as you both know me, I am an optimistic person. We have been talking, whether you're a woman or you're, you know, a racial minority, we've been talking about these issues since the 1960s. I know. Oh, yeah. We have made some progress, but here it is, 2000. <laughs> Well, and, and we're not nearly where we should be. And we're still talking, maybe some different language around it, but we're talking about the same. Problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
Well, listen, I, I, I want to get to your third of your business, the one of the areas on executive coaching, Valerie. And this is really interesting to me, as you know, I've repeated many times, we're looking at on the podcast, the role that communication plays in, in, in addressing chronic social problems, climate change, misinformation, disinformation, the one we were just talking about, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You do a lot of executive coaching. You're really terrific at it. I love the material that's on your website around it. When you talk to CEOs and other executives, Valerie, how are they adjusting or are they to rising expectations for them to be more involved as a social leader, speaking out on social issues? This is something that we get asked about all the time by executives is when to speak and when to shut up. So how are they adjusting their leadership style or are they? I would say it depends. We have some CEOs that get it and see that they do need to have a role in society. Obviously, CEOs are looking at social purpose in a much different way than they used to. Mm -hmm. I would say we also have many that you have to kind of bring them along. And luckily, there's been a lot of good research that shows the importance of a CEO taking a stand. And I think probably the biggest most effective argument is that employees want their leaders to take a stand on issues. I think the issue is how do you make that strategic and not overdo it because they, they are still running businesses. So we talk about it in three ways. One is whatever you take a stand on, it has to be, have some strategic relevance to your business or to Mm -hmm. your stakeholders to know what your stakeholders reaction is going to be to the stand doesn't mean you want to change it because you're not going to please everyone but be aware of that and i would say the most important thing is what what are the actions behind it you just can't be talking about we should be having more diversity well who's what's your leadership team look like? We should be doing more for the environment. What are you doing for the environment? So it really has to be on the basis of what actions the companies are taking. And that takes sometimes a little bit longer for them to actually do. Yeah. And, you know, it's some of that is coming back to bite some big companies too on pledges they made after George Floyd a year or so ago, other things related to the environment. And my feeling on this, Valerie, is always, there are always unexpected impediments to pledges that you make, you know? So sometimes your actions hit unexpected roadblocks. I see a lot of CEOs these days, and are some sort of obfuscating the issue rather than just saying, hey, this is harder than we thought. And so that leads me to ask you, so how has all of this changed the advice you give one-on-one to a CEO, let's say, about how they should think about not only their teams and their actions, but the words that they say and the way they think about social commitments. Yeah, I think it gets back to what is the key element of most of the things we talk about, and that's transparency. Yeah. You know, let's be honest about what we can do and what the plan is to achieve it. I do think that, you know, m- most, not every, most business leaders are usually pretty good about driving their business initiatives forward. Mm -hmm. I don't really know if they put the same amount of effort around some of the social elements that we're talking about. I I loved, uh, I loved Greta Thunberg's calling out of the companies at the (laughs) climate change conference this week, where she said her quote was no more blah, 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 which I thought (laughs) was, was fabulous. So I think what what we need to do as communicators and as consultants is to have an honest conversation with what are you really prepared to do and then how can we make it happen and then how can we talk about it. So New York Life is one of our clients and they've done I think a particularly good job in this. They just made this year a billion dollar impact investment initiative commitment to address the racial wealth gap by mm-hmm. investing in underserved and undercapitalized communities over the next three years. So that's core to their business. It's $3 billion. They have a lot of different funds and a lot of different activities that fall under that, but it's, it's, they're actually doing it. And now they can talk about it. Now so they can talk about it. Excellent. That's terrific. You advise a lot of companies on culture change, you know, and in today's world, companies that seemingly can navigate that well, that often leads to stronger reputations, business success. How should agency professionals and in-house communications teams 
themselves be thinking about their role as leaders of corporate culture or corporate culture change in helping their organizations navigate change? Yeah, I think this is where the role of the chief communications officer can also be the chief collaboration officer, which is working across the C-suite to, to help define what the culture is, what's the social purpose, what are the values of the company working in lockstep with the rest of the C-suite and recognizing it's not just a top-down, cultures and top-down, it's bottom-up. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you have your finger on the pulse of what employees need and want and how do you ingrain a culture? I, I, one example recently over the whole COVID pandemic era was the IBM pledge. I don't know if you know about that. It was mm -hmm. something that was at the CEO made to the company about behaviors during this period, how about how to set boundaries. He's gonna set boundaries to be, be fair and sensitive, to be fa to family centric. But it came, the, the actual tenants of that came from the employee population. Interesting. So I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's a bottom up as much as a top down and we have to kind of help facilitate all that. With so much change going on outside companies, inside companies, leaders having to react more quickly, making choices about when to get involved in, in social matters and when not. Do we need to be in our function, in, in communications, in marketing? Do we need to be hiring differently or reskilling our teams to ensure that we're still in the game? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm a big believer when we talk about diversity, not just in terms of gender and all the other definitions of diversity, but diversity of thought and background. So I think it would behoove us to make look outside of, with all due respect to those of us, including myself, who have a journalism degree, <laughs> different degrees. So social psychology, for example, I think would be incredibly impactful. I think bringing people on the comms team that have or have been trained in HR areas could be really helpful. So I think broadening the experience and the academic backgrounds of the people on the comms team with an eye to culture being, you know, how to help people be more empathetic, things of that nature could be really interesting. Valerie, I want to ask you about, I haven't been a CCO for five years now, right? I've, I've been on the outside looking in, but I want to ask, I want to ask a question, another question about culture change and your experience, when you come in and work with a client, let's say it's the CCO or the CEO, how, do you, how best would it be, for example, for a CCO to work with and, and approach the HR leader? Because you have to be partners. I just remember back to the days of when at GE, you may remember when HR was preeminent in a lot of cases. And they might've told us to talk to the hand if I said I wanted to get involved in culture. So what are some tips or what's the best approach for working with HR on culture? Yeah, I think like many things, it's about relationship building. So right. how, do you, how do you really get to know somebody? What's their agenda? What are their skill sets? What, what are they good at? Where can you help perhaps step in where there might be a gap. We did this when I was CCO of Motorola, Ruth Vittori, who actually is also a GE, <laughs> GE person, was head of HR. And together we created the program to create new, new values for Motorola. So mm -hmm. we went into it like, here's, here's how we can do this together. So it doesn't, one person doesn't have to, or one function doesn't have to own it. I think if you divide it up and, and show how you can partner to get the best results, I think they're usually, I haven't seen too many people who don't want to do that unless they're very insecure. So hopefully that would work, but yeah, you have to kind of have some small yeah. wins, you know, help them with some, some Completely. initiatives that they have to promote maybe internally and have that. And then and then you can kind of go from there. Absolutely. Collaborative valued relationships are, are the key. And it's something that professionally, how to build those relationships in the C-suite and, and across an organization is something we really need to focus on as the, as the CCO role expands into other areas like culture. I find that this is something in particular that women not, are not always good at, which maybe it sounds surprising since we're supposed to be more relationship oriented. <laughs> and that is, right. we, you know, we always, we sense, you know, our definition of success is we have to work really, really hard. And so 
I even remember when I was at GE, Gary, I would, you know, the guys on my team would go down to the cafeteria and have lunch with Mike Neal, who, you know, ultimately was the CEO of GE Capital. And Ran the I'd place. get my desk working, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, making the time to exactly. frankly build these relationships and spend time with people, even if it's not doesn't seem as productive at the moment is actually very important. Yeah. You know, your observation is so spot on with my experiences at GE and you were in a financial business. Think about being in one of the harder, you know, quote unquote, hard, like industrial businesses, like aviation or energy or industrial systems. I always thought it was much harder, that cafeteria story for them to go and have a, have lunch. There certainly was a culture that I don't know. I don't want to say discourage that, but didn't promote it in, in, in many ways. So I want to go back and, and stake a claim here that you and I were, you know, far ahead of our time back in 2016, 17. Mike knows, you know, I like to do this kind of bragging <laughs> on the podcast. But at, with the Page Society, we did some really good CEO research on how they viewed the changing business environment. So this is five or four or five years ago and the value of communication and helping achieve their business goals. So really reaching out to the the customer, if you will, and getting their voice. And the finding I remember from that most, we did a report on that, Valerie, was that CEO said that social value must be baked into the business plan. You know, and in earlier studies, it was less central, less communicated. And this all predated, of course, the Business Roundtable's 2020 change and its statement of corporate purpose. So this has been around a while, this idea of purpose and business for good. How do you think business is doing today in in making sure that their rhetoric is followed through on? We've discussed this a little bit, their actions match their words. And specifically, what can a communicator and a comms team do to help that happen? Well, I think some are doing better than others. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one of the great things about the Page Society, as you both well know, is their commitment to the principles. And even back, way back when, Mm -hmm. when the principles were first started by Arthur Page himself, their whole idea about businesses, you know, working in the public interest was part of that. So we've been talking about this for a long time. I think as communications leaders, what we need to be are, we have lots of roles. I said earlier, the chief collaboration officer, and now I'm going to say the the chief trust officer, Mm -hmm. although I I guess the CTO title is claimed by somebody else. But I think we need to have really honest dialogue again about what is, what's in the wheelhouse of the company? What can you actually do that you can make a difference on and treat it like any other initiative within the company in that, what are the steps to make it happen? I mean, what's, what's the business plan behind making a difference in the environment and measuring results? I mean, that's the other thing. I'm a huge speaker yes. in looking, and that's becoming more public. I'll go back to the diversity issue where companies have to now really publish what their numbers look like as far as their leadership teams and other things. And, and that wasn't, we are, I would say the company's feet were not held to the fire as much as far as reporting on the results of the initiative. So I think we could help them work out the strategies, work out the steps to get there, work out how we're going to measure it and kind of keep them honest through the process. Yeah. I can remember many conversations where I would say, you know, we have to do this now, right? Whether it was a climate pledge or a jobs pledge, other, you know, commitments to donations and that kind of thing is like, okay, who's doing it? Who's leading it? And what kind of clarity are we going to have in ha- into how we're doing, both internally and externally? So, yep. it's so a I great... think if we're at the table at the beginning of all of this, before they even announce what their new initiative is going to be, yes. I think that would be really important. Exactly. Yeah. It's, easy to, uh, it's easy to make pledges, harder to nail what you're actually going to do. Right? Exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, Valerie, but I want to come back to the executive coaching part of the work that you do. And, you know, CEOs have become, as we've discussed, more diplomats in their public roles. They're thought leaders, they're social commentators. And I agree with you, they have to think about their own brands. You've written smartly on leadership brands and personal brands. You wrote, understanding your brand makes you a more effective leader of people because it creates focus for the story you tell every time you communicate. 
Now, when I have conversations sometimes with leaders about their own personal brands, they're like, ah, oh, Gary, please, you know, I, I don't want to do that. They're reluctant to discuss it. They think it's selfish or self-focused. But I wanted to ask you, are, are more CEOs recognizing how important their own personal brand is to organizational success? Well, I would say no one is coming to us. No CEO is coming to us and said, Valerie, can you help me with my executive brand? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good thing, I think. (laughs) But when we explain it in the context of, you know, your company has a brand, your products and services have brands, you need to have a personal, I call it an executive brand because it is in the business context. And what are the benefits? So it, it helps you show up in a different way and helps you be consistent about how you show up to all of your constituencies. And so what we normally do in the process, we have a whole process about how to develop it, but showing why it's a benefit and then how to use it. You use it throughout, you know, it, it helps you walk the talk, I would say. So one example, Fannie Mae has been one of our clients and we work with a lot of their executives on their own brands. But one gentleman who's wonderful this was kind of a he was kind of a data geek and all but also an incredibly empathetic person he he had a wonderful combination of both so we created a brand for him that was solving housing providing housing solutions using heart and head so that was kind of his brand nice and so and he got you you show it's not really about you as much as it shows the value you bring to the business and the value you bring to your stakeholders. So if you, con- you put it in that context, and then it gives him a framework every time he does a speech, every time he talks to his teams, every time he sends an email, is he actually talking about solutions both from the data points as well as from what good it can can come of it. Yeah, and I think the important point there is that what CEOs say in meetings and and to people in the organization, I think rightfully or wrongfully, tends to get over-indexed in people's minds. It, it, It gets a higher degree of value. And so sometimes people overreact. And and if you have a CEO who thinks out loud, sometimes when they're still processing something, it becomes policy. And so I think it's it's really smart for executives to at least spend some time thinking about, you know, what do they say? What do they do? How do they spend their time? How is that communicated in some way? Because it can have an impact on not just what the organization thinks about you, but how they think about what they should be doing because they think you think a particular way. <laughs> well, and, and I think this is really important to a leader, this idea of an executive brand, because you're going to, you're going to get a brand anyway. Mm-hmm. If, if, exactly. You know, others are going to brand you Mike, to your mm-hmm. point. And so I just, I, I think active, you know, thinking about it and being smart about it. And I love this idea Valerie, that you talked about it. It gives you a foundation for everything that you do. In some ways, it's, uh, I, I try to tell leaders, it's liberating, mm-hmm. right? Because you have that coming in to a discussion. Exactly. Then, and you stand for something that means something, again, in a business context. Yeah. So it's not about ego, it's about the value you bring. I think reinforcing that is an important component. Now, Valerie, you've got a breadth of experience on both the in-house side and the agency side. Uh, I'd love for you to comment a little bit about what you see from the agency side in terms of other types of companies that are coming to the fore. It seems like every day I'm getting an email or some kind of message from some new specialty firm that they're, they're focused on brand efficacy. They're focused on, you know, like the conversation we just had, they're, 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 they're focused on, you know, helping executives in a particular way. They're focused on philanthropy. They're focused on ESG. They're, they're focused on, on risk in different ways. If you were a chief communications officer today, as you look at the plethora of boutique firms, what would you think of all of that? And how might you go about discerning which, if any of these specialty firms had value for you? I think it's actually great to be specialized and to really know a specific area really in depth. I think as 
when you're in-house, it's hard to know everything in depth. So that's why you bring in agencies and experts to focus on a specific area. So I think it's really good. I was never a, a proponent of, you know, having one global agency, for example, because, you know, the, the capability of a specific agency in Beijing is not necessarily going to be the same <laughs> as an agency in Berlin. So I think cherry picking what you need based on your initiatives and where you want to focus the comms time, I think is really good. I think as long as the, the people have real experience and they also have a view to how what they do fits into the bigger picture so you know everything today is intro interlocked there's you know nothing is a standalone initiative so if they're doing esg great what does that mean to employees what does that mean to you know investors what does that mean to everybody not just maybe the one slice they might be looking at and last question is kind of the flip side of that you know communications professionals in many veins, their their responsibilities, their remits are expanding. We see them that are taking on even risk management sometimes for their companies. We see them taking on ESG. We talked a little bit about that. How should they be approaching the future and how should they be sorting and sifting their future in order to be more valued and valuable to their enterprises? Well, I've always been a believer that we're business leaders. We're not just comms people. So I think that we should always have a point of view and experience across the boards. I would say three things most importantly for now and for the future is one, to stay ahead of business strategies and technology trends. So you have to kind of be on the forefront of all of that. Number two, as we always have been, is to really have a finger on the pulse of all of our stakeholders and bring those points of view to the table. I think we're in a great position. We've always been to do that. Now, I think we, with social media and other tools, we can do that even more effectively. And then third, my big message is to have courage. So the courage to be a change agent, the courage to speak up if something is not going correctly, the courage to say, we've said we're going to do this, now we actually have to act on it. I often wonder when companies get in trouble where the head of communications was in the room <laughs> when they were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Did no one say, hello, raise your hand, we're not supposed to be doing this, this is not going to be good. So courage, 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 I would say is my big message. Yeah, yeah that's terrific. Uh, what one last thing is, is so as, as you say that, one of the things that, that is prompted in my head is as you look at chief communications officers that you know, and, and maybe some, some are, are even clients, but it's like, as you look at everything that's changing, are there things that, that the CCOs aren't getting right that you say to yourself, gee, they should do this better? I would say that many of the CCOs I work with and that I know through Paige are doing many of the things well. I, I really do. I would say the only thing maybe we should be looking at is getting a little bit more outside of our industry expertise and looking across companies and not just corporations, but other enterprises to look at best practices and to maybe bring some outside in thinking. I think what happens sometimes, especially if you've been with the same company for a long time, you tend to get very, you're very insulated as far as the way to do things or what your point of view is. So that's one of the things that agencies can help us bring best practices across the board. So that's what I would say. I think most, I think most of them are doing a great job. I just think we want to make sure we push the envelope by looking elsewhere for solutions. Yeah. Thank you. And I think, Valerie, that's so wise when it comes to your concept on agencies. I always enjoyed having a team of teams of agencies. And, and because they brought that outside in thinking and challenged what we were doing, we thought was best practice and opened our eyes to a lot of things. Well, and I love your point about courage. I think it's a huge, huge point. So Valerie DiMaria is the founder and principal. I've got to get founder in my title somehow. <laughs> I love that. She's the founder and principal at The Ten Company. 
She's a good friend of Mike and mine and, and widely, widely known for her wise counsel and clear thinking. Valerie, thanks for being on The Crux. Thank, Thank you. you both. This was delightful. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.